church family. If we could begin to take our seats. It, it really is a, a joy and a, and a pleasure to be with, with the people of God, to be like-minded, right? Man, just to come and just the sweetness of, of fellowship with one another. You know, as I was, uh, as I was uh, singing alongside of you, this, this thought came into my head um, as, our, as our brother was leading us, and I believe it was from the Lord. Um, and it's this, you know, th- throughout the course of our world history, there have been many wars. Everything from the Cold War to the, co- the, the war in Iraq to the war in Vietnam, World War I, World War II. And there were many courageous acts that happened in those wars. People taking bullets for their friends. People dying for people that they cared about, for their fellow soldiers. And we commemorate them in Washington, D.C. But never in any of those wars did one of those soldiers die for their enemy. And as I was thinking about that, I thought about Jesus. Because that's what Jesus came to do. Jesus didn't die for his friends. Jesus died for his enemies. Jesus died for those who wanted nothing to do with him. Jesus pursued people who naturally run away from him. Jesus died for his enemies. And what a joy it is to be able to call him Lord, that he would make his enemies his friends. He would make his enemies, his sons and daughters. And the reason why I believe the Spirit of God was putting that on my, on my heart is because I know that many of us are processing life the best way that we know how. There are many things that are going on in our culture. There are many things that are going on in our society, our direct society here in Chicago. And then there's just all type of stuff that go on throughout the week in our own personal life. Constantly. But see, when we realize that we were made friends while being enemies, it changes our perspective on everything. Because now we have a new purpose, a new identity that's life-giving rather than weighed down by the pressures of life. This wasn't part of my sermon, but it, it... it does connect to my sermon in that in order for us to hear from God, we have to be in a place of, of, of a posture where we are actually understanding where we stand with God, where we stand with God on the basis of Jesus. And today we're going to be talking about prayer. We're going to be talking about prayer and we're going to be talking about how we pray. What kinds of things should we pray for? And in order to understand prayer, we have to understand on what basis we can pray from. See, we could only pray to God on the basis of being in relationship with God. 
by our belief in Jesus, our faith in Jesus, nothing else. That's the only way that we have access to God's throne. So if we're going to pray, then, and we want to know how to pray, then we have to know on what basis, what grounds we're able to ask. And we are in a, in a pivotal time in our church where we want to see God move. We want to see God continue to multiply the brook. We want to see God continue to plant churches out of the brook, to mobilize people, to, to restore families, to see the lost be saved and find Jesus. But see, the interesting thing about God is that God does not move apart from dependency upon him. So if we're going to do all of that, then we have to be a praying church. So for the next two weeks, or this week and next week, we're going to be talking about praying and fasting. We're going to be talking about what it means to submit our will and our plans to the will of God. What does that look like? And I pray that this, this, these next two weeks would be a blessing to you as you begin to process your relationship with God, your standing with God, and that we would be mobilized as a church to make Jesus known to a dying world because that's what the world needs. So I just want to pray, and then we'll get started with, with our sermon today. Father God, we sung Jesus be the center of our lives. God, I pray that that would be uh, the genuine, authentic nature of our, of our heart toward you, God. That no matter what we brought into this place today, no matter what is weighing us down, no matter what sin we are struggling with, Father, that we would see that when you're the center of our lives, God, we have peace here on earth. We have direction for our lives, Father, and we have the power to move forward in grace and in truth. So, Father God, I just pray as a mere man, God. I'm just a mere man, Lord. There's nothing that I could say. There's no power in and of myself, Lord, that could stir hearts to you, Lord. It's only your spirit It's only your power that can do that, Lord. So even as I talk about prayer, even as I preach on prayer, Lord, God, I realize that I don't pray enough, Lord. God, and I just pray that today, as we get into your word, Lord, that we would learn from you, that we would learn what it means to pray, that we would learn what it means to dwell in your presence. Father, we have many plans in this church. God, we believe that you will grow this church. We believe that you will multiply this church. But Father God, let it not be without you. Father, we don't want to do anything apart from you, God. We don't want success apart from you, Lord. God, because that is the miracle. That is the miracle that you are with us. Father, so be with us even today as we listen. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. So, in prayer, one of the key things that we need is confidence. 
As I was thinking about having confidence when we approach God, I was thinking about an old family story. I love hearing stories of my family. If you heard me preach enough, I often use them as examples because one is just funny. And then two, God just, just speaks to me through these stories. And one time my dad was telling the story about his eighth grade graduation. My dad said that his mom dressed him that day. He was wearing a tie. He was wearing a tux. You know, he was, he was, he was, he was fresh, ready to go to school. And he goes to school, and during recess, he's with his brother. His brother is a year younger than him. And what ends up happening is that he notices that his brother, during recess, starts hiding behind a tree. Almost like, like he, he didn't want to be seen at that second. So my dad, in his suit, at recess, you ever seen like those kids are like super sweaty, like after church in like a suit, like running around? Like, I imagine it was like that outside, he's just sweating, just, he notices his brother and he's like, man, what, are you, what is my brother doing? What is, what is, what is Mario doing? And as he's, he's looking at his brother, he approaches his brother and he says, is everything okay? Like, why are you, why are you hiding behind this, this, this tree? And then he tells him, he's like, man, you know, these, these triplets over there, they're, they're a group of triplet brothers. Um, they've been bullying me. And, uh, you know, I just, I just don't feel the, the confidence to, to roam around the playground. So my dad being the bigger brother that he is, in his suit all sweaty, he approaches these triplets and he's like, hey, you messing with my brother? And I guess they said something slick to him. And now I don't condone fighting. So this is just an illustration. And he told me to say that because I asked him if I could use the story. He, he proceeded to make contact with his face. So I'll just say it like that. But he ended up taking an L. He took a loss that day. It was triplets. It was three on one, and his brother was afraid. So, you know, it was, they were just unmatched. They didn't look good as a unit as a family unit at that time. So my, my dad says that he was sticking up for his brother, and even this morning as I was talking to him about it, he said that they, they, they drew him through the mud. I mean, like he was in his suit. He was through the mud just like, man, they, 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 they messed him up. And the funnier part is that, um, you know, he went back into, into the school hall, and he was all dirty, and, like, the teachers felt bad for him and started cleaning him up, and, you know, our, our family didn't have a lot of money, or his family didn't have a lot of money growing up, so, you know, a suit was a big deal, so he was, like, cleaning it up, and he said that my grandma never noticed anything. I, I, he doesn't know how. He's just like, man, she just never noticed that his suit was that dirty. They did such a good job in cleaning it, but what he told me was... Look, man, I took an L. I lost. But they never mess with my brother ever again. See, I, I, I stuck up for my brother. I did what I believed was true. And it didn't look like the result that, or it didn't look like the result he thought he was going to get. But they never bullied him again. He was able to have confidence anytime he went to that playground. And today, the question for us is, what does our confidence lie in when we walk with God? See, we're in this playground called life, 
right? We have all types of opposition. We have triplets of triplets beyond triplets of problems. We have triplets upon triplets of temptations. And as we sung, we know that our hearts are deceitful above all things. And sometimes we feel incompetent and we don't feel safe as we walk with God through this playground called life. But we know that we walk with God if we believe in Jesus, right? So sometimes we need to be reminded of what our confidence actually lies in. Because sometimes we have a temptation to get behind the tree and just be like, man, I don't want to go out there. Man, those dudes are going to mess me up. So today, I want to bridge the gap between your issue, what you desire to see from God, and ultimately the confidence to go with God, to be mobilized in this life. So we're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 5. This is the epistle of John. There's a gospel of John, and then there's also an epistle of John. And in your pew Bibles, it's on page 1023. We're going to be in chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 13. John chapter 5. Verse 13, it says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have, church family say you have, eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have, say we have, toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have, church families say, we have have. the request that we have asked of him. So first, we see that our confidence lies in the fact that we have eternal life. What is eternal life? Because here he says, I write these things to you that you may, to, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. He's assuring them, hey, I'm writing you these things so that you're confident that you actually have eternal life. What is eternal life? In Christian circles, we often use that, especially when we're talking to people about Jesus. Man, you can have eternal life with Jesus if you repent and believe in Jesus and what he did on the death and his death and resurrection. You can reign with him for eternity. It's eternal life. But what is eternal life? Eternal means unending, everlasting. It never finishes. Life as the Bible defines it, is to exist connected to God both physically and spiritually. Now, see, see, this is, this is the interesting thing. Because what's contrary to life is death. See, biblically, you can be physically connected to God. God allows you to live physically, but you could be dead spiritually because you have no connection to him. Because you don't believe in Jesus. So if you die 
physically and you're not connected to God spiritually, meaning you're dead spiritually, then you'll spend eternity apart from God. That's called hell. And that's where you face the eternal wrath of God forever. But here, John says, I'm writing these things so that you may believe, that you may know that you, that you who believe in the Son of God have eternal life. What, he, what he's saying there is that believers in the Son of God have an unending, everlasting existence in relationship with God that carries over even after physical death. So even the moment that we take our last breath, every single life in here will breathe their last. We all have an expiration date. But if you don't have a connection to him spiritually, then you'll be disconnected from him eternally. How do we have eternal life? He says in this text, as he's writing to those who believe in the name of the Son of God. To believe in this context means to entrust, to have confidence in God. Almost as if you're staking your entire life on the Son of God. Who's the Son of God? The Son of God is a reference to Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God. We believe in the Trinity as as Christians. The Trinity means that we believe in one God, that exists in three persons. And these three persons are God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God the Father isn't God the Son. God the Son isn't God the Father. God the Holy Spirit isn't God the Father. God the Holy Spirit isn't God the Son. But yet, they're one God. Some of you guys are looking at me kind of mysterious because it is mysterious. But who wants to serve a God that they could fully understand? I don't want that type of God. I'm just saying. So here he's saying the son of God, Jesus. Jesus being the son of God means that Jesus is eternal. Jesus is God because he is eternal. So he says those who have assurance in eternal life are those who have confidence, who have entrusted their lives to the name of the son of God, which is Jesus who is God who revealed himself here on earth, became flesh. He lived a life that you and I could not live, never broke God the Father's law, and died the death that we deserved for breaking God's law. And he says, if you believe and trust yourself, and trust your will, and trust your emotions, and trust your mind to God, then you have eternal life. Now, it's interesting that he says, those who believe in the name of the Son of God. See, in, in biblical times, a name was a big deal. When you came on behalf of somebody's name, it underscored authority. I'm under this person's authority. So if I come in so-and-so's name, I'm coming on their behalf. That's what they call a herald or an ambassador. It's almost like if you work in shipping and you're delivering a package and you say, I'm coming on behalf of this company. 
So I got to make sure that you're receiving everything that we promise to deliver. Because we don't want our name to be tarnished. We, we, we're putting our name on this product. And we want to make sure that you receive it good and well. And here he says, those who believe in the name of the Son of God. And what he's saying is, those who truly believe the Son of God are those who have placed or submitted their lives under the authority of God. That's what it means to believe in the name of the Son of God. It doesn't merely mean that you believe that Jesus was alive and that he rose simply, but rather believing in such a way where he becomes the authority of your life. See, in the world, it's undeniable that Jesus rose from the grave. It's undeniable that Jesus died, actually died. But the world often doesn't acknowledge or believe in the authority that comes with his death and resurrection. So here, John is saying, those who believe in Jesus Christ in such a way where he is the authority of their lives, then they have eternal, unending, everlasting existence in connection with God. Because Jesus is eternal, unending, and is connected to God the Father and God the Spirit. And there's no other way to have eternal life with God apart from Jesus. Unless you believe in the name of Jesus. So in Christ, we have the confidence of eternal life by believing, by having faith in Jesus. It's not about what you do. It's not about how much you pray. It's not about how much of the Bible you know, but rather your belief. And the authority of Jesus the Christ. That's what gives you eternal life. And when you're under authority, under the authority of Jesus Christ, that's when you're compelled to pray. That's when you're compelled to read your word. And that's why he says you can be confident in prayer in the next two verses. Read with me in verse 14. He says... And this is the confidence, say confidence, church family, that we have toward him. So here he says, look, we have confidence that we have eternal life when we believe in the name of the Son of God, which is Jesus, the eternal God who died and raised from the dead. And he says, this confidence overflows in the way that we pray. Because he says, this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything, According to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. He's talking about prayer. Prayer, at the most basic level, is an exchange between God and humanity where God speaks to the thoughts of man and the thoughts of women. At the most basic level, that is what prayer is. You're communicating with God. Think about that. The eternal, everlasting God who created you wants to communicate with you. It's an exchange. And based on these two verses, we see that one of the key characteristics of prayer is an exchange that includes humans making requests and God answering them. That's interesting. 
Because oftentimes, it appears as if we have unanswered prayers. But here, John is saying, the exchange between you and God is that you ask and he gives. And throughout the course of scripture, what we see is that there are people who ask God as they confess their sin to him, ask them for forgiveness, and God gave them forgiveness. There are people who were reflecting on who God was and began to think about the things that he had did in their lives, his answer to their lives, his goodness to their lives. In the scripture, we see how that led them to praise and thanksgiving, to sing. Throughout the scripture, we see uh, people who, 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 who needed a provision, who were asking God to provide something, and God gave them something. And John, being the disciple that walked with Jesus himself, saw this firsthand. When Jesus prayed, it happened. Whenever they were needing a provision. So John is telling us when you're in Christ, when you possess eternal life because you believe in the name of Jesus, you put your total confidence, you live under the authority and lordship of Jesus, you too, like Jesus, could ask and he will answer you. But he gives a condition. Look at verse 14. He says in the second line that if we ask according to his will, he hears us. See, that's the condition of prayer. We can ask anything to God, but we must ask according to his will. Now, now see, this is, this is the problem. See, oftentimes prayer is more asking God to do our will, not his will. Sometimes prayer is more, God, you do this for me, and we'll be good. That's not the way God communicates. The way God communicates on the basis of Jesus is us bending our will to what he wants us to do. Not what we want to do, because our hearts are deceitful. We're prideful. We're lustful. We sin against people. We seek our own interests. So the condition between the prayers and requests that we make and the answers that God gives is his will. So how do you pray according to his will? Right? Because I want answered prayer. I want to pray to God and I want to see God move. But he's saying we have to do it under God's will. What's God's will? God's will is what God desires to see the right things that he desires to see. Where do we know what God God desires to see for our lives? It's in the Bible. God has revealed his will in the Bible. You want to know God's will for your relationships, for your marriage? Look at his word. You want to know God's will for the provision that you need? You can look at his word on the Sermon on the Mount when he says, be anxious for nothing, but rather be content with food and clothing. Jesus even says, if, if God, 
he, him clothing the ravens, giving them something to eat. Our birds, aren't you more significant? Won't he provide for you? So God wants to provide, and he has revealed in his word what his will. But how do we pray for his will? What does that look? So he's revealed his will through the scripture, but how do we pray through the scripture? We pray through the scripture by reading his word and submitting to what his word says. So if God says, love your enemies, then your prayer, when it's under God's will, is God, help me love this person that I can't stand. You don't got to pray about what God's will is in that. He told you. So God reveals what he wants us to pray for, and then he inspires what we should pray for specifically in our thoughts. But see, sometimes our thoughts play tricks on us. Our mind plays tricks on us, right? We think, man, this is of God. I should, I, I should do this, right? I should do this. And this thought comes into our head. And sometimes it even appears as a God-sent thing. How do, we, how do we verify that in prayer? We verify that by verifying it against his word. What does that look like? Let's just say you, you find a, a, a brother or a sister who, who seemingly, outwardly, if you're single in here, has it all together, playing, paying their bills. I mean, they, they, they have a, a house. They, they got a car. Seems like they, can, they could provide for you. They could protect you. But they don't know Jesus. But you're tempted to say, man, God, but this, this appears good. Isn't it good to, to, for this person to have a job to protect me and have a safety net for me? Doesn't, doesn't, this, doesn't this align with your will? Isn't this good? And what we see through Scripture is that's not what God wants. God would rather have you broke with little Serving him with somebody who loves him on mission with him and somebody who has plentiful, who has all the security in the world and doesn't follow him and will spend an eternity without him. So the way you pray for that is, God, this is your will. Your will is for me to be on mission with somebody, a partner that I can glorify God with. That's your will, God. God, give me the strength to live out your will. That's submission to God in prayer. And guess what God will do? God will answer. God will answer. God will hear you, he says. And you have the request that you have made. So in essence, God loves to answer your request when he hears his request in them. So the next time you pray, ask yourself, man, is this really my request or is this really God's request? Two different, two different animals. And I just want to give an example of what this might look like as you are reading through, through, through your word. In Psalm chapter 10, verse 16 through 18, it says, The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, 
You hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. So that man who is from the earth may strike terror no more. How do we pray God's will reading that? Well, here we see that David, who was the writer of the psalm, he says that the Lord is king forever. And he says that you hear the afflicted. You hear those who are fatherless. You want to do justice. It's in the text. So the way you pray for that is like this. God, I'm coming to you. I see all these problems. I see all these candidates. I see all this violence. I see all this sin around me. God, would you be Lord in this situation? Would you be king in this situation? Would you hear us? And would you comfort me who is afflicted? Would you bring justice in a time where it seems like there is none? Father, would you comfort those who are oppressed? And just continue to let the Spirit of God inspire you to pray based off his will. So in order to pray God's will, we must pray the scripture or be inspired by it. And that takes meditation. Sometimes that takes just pausing and saying, I have a lot on my mind, but I'm just going to listen. And God will speak. That's what this, this text says. So in Christ, we have the confidence that we have eternal life. We have the confidence that we could communicate with God. And as we are communicating with God, we function under the condition of his will found in his word. And after we verify our thoughts according to his word and we submit them to his word and we're inspired by his word, and that's when we must connect God's will with his timing. See, sometimes we ask God for things that are according to his will, but his timing doesn't seem like it matches up to ours. See, we live in a fast-paced culture. We want everything now. God, I want this right now. Nowhere in this text does it say that you have the request that you have made, that you have asked of him now. He says that you have them. He says that you possess them. He says that when you pray and you ask, he hears you and they're yours. But he never says when. When they're yours. And see, that's the hardest thing about the Christian life. Because people get sick in our lives. There's been close people in my life who have died, who we've prayed that God would heal them. And he didn't do it on this side of eternity. See, there's times that we pray for a mate. We want to serve God. We're looking for the right things. But God in his wisdom doesn't provide right now. But see, if you look at scripture, you see that God will always be, will always get glory from you. By building your character before giving you a breakthrough. See, see, God won't give you a breakthrough if you don't have his character. Because if you don't have his character, then you won't glorify him. 
And if you don't glorify him, then you're glorifying yourself. So God builds our character. God builds our identity before he takes us into the next step. And that's the way it worked in scripture. See, King David, one of the greatest kings that was to foreshadow the Christ, Jesus, the son of God. See, he waited 20 years before he was king, even though he knew he was going to be king. And he was being persecuted in the valleys. He was being threatened for his life. He was nearly dead. People backstabbing him. And all through that, he would cry out, Lord, aren't you with me? Didn't you anoint me king? Ain't I supposed to be on the throne, chilling, calling the shots? He spent 20 years running for his life so that he would see that God is all he needed. Think about Abraham, the patriarch. In Genesis, if you read it, God promised him. He said, leave your land, and I'm going to take you to another land. It's called the promised land. And he says, I'm going to make you the father of many sons and daughters. Now, the interesting thing about that is Abraham didn't have a son until he was of old age. He didn't have a son until he was of old age. And even when God told him, hey, Abraham, Sarah, his wife, it's time. He laughed at God because he was like, God, don't you see? I'm, I'm an old man. I can't, I can't do, you know, that no more. It's, 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 it's past my time, God. I'm sorry. And God yet gave him a son that began to be fruitful that later became the nation of Israel, the Jews. But see, he didn't get that until he was of old age. God had to build him up in order to fulfill that promise. You think about the Jews. They waited 400 years to hear a voice from God. See, the Jews, as they grew as a nation, they began to rebel with God. They began to play God and try to exchange other other gods, other false idols for Yahweh, their Lord, the one who created them. And God continued to give them prophets, people who would warn them, hey, repent, come back. Come back. If you don't come back, you will lose the land that was promised to your forefather Abraham. If you continue to disobey me, you will lose. And finally, God allowed his judgment to be upon them, and they were conquered for 400 years. And God said, I'm not saying anything. For 400 years, I'm not talking to you. I'm not speaking through dreams. I'm not speaking. I'm not raising up no prophet. I'm not saying nothing until you're ready to be built up. And then we see Jesus come on the scene. After 400 years, who would be the prophet, who would be a priest, who would go before them, and who would be a king. But they had to wait. And then you go to the disciples. Disciples were walking with Jesus for three years. 
watching his, his miracles, learning what it means to walk with God. And when Jesus was ascending back into heaven after he, after he resurrected and John was there, the disciples were asking, hey, uh, Jesus, now that you rose, yo, we taking over Rome now? We taking over, right? Ha <laughs> ha, are we going to be kings? And then God is, Jesus is like, nah, stay in Jerusalem. Stay in Jerusalem. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then I will come to establish my, king, my kingdom physically. He built their character before he gave them the breakthrough. And that's what God does with us. And that's why in the Psalms you often see the term wait. I will wait upon the Lord. I will wait upon the Lord. Lord, it looks like these people are going to kill me, but I will wait upon the Lord to be my salvation. It looks like I don't have money in the bank, but I'm going to wait upon the Lord because you've never forsaken me. You said that you would provide for me. I'm going to wait upon the Lord to be my satisfaction in such a way that it bleeds into a relationship if that's your will, God. See, praying for God's will and submitting to his timing really is a posture of the heart. We got to submit to his authority and trust that his ways are better than our ways. Trust that right now we suffer, but later, later in eternity, we get all that we need and we actually get to be with him physically. See, what prayer does is prayer connects what you possess in eternity with what you need here on earth. See, sometimes we think that what we need here on earth aligns with eternity, but really it doesn't. When really we need to align ourselves to what God has for us in eternity and ask him to give us some here on earth. And that's when we see God move. But sometimes God's answer to our prayers, because he does answer, is a yes. Not yet here on this side of eternity. Wait. And in the midst of that, the miracle is that you are with God. What playground are you in? You're probably in a playground full of sin, full of issues that surround you, full of conflict. And you might be like my Uncle Mario, just hiding. Just hiding because you don't, you don't even know how to navigate this thing. You ever, you, I know I'm not the only one. You ever been walking through life and you're just paralyzed? You don't know what to do? You ever been there? And then it causes you to isolate yourself and to kind of say, man, I don't want to do that, man. I don't want to do that. I just want to fold. I don't want that. 
See, when you realize that your confidence relies in eternal life with Jesus, when you realize that your confidence lies in the fact that you could actually communicate with God, that you have an exchange with God where he hears and he answers according to his plan, according to his timing, and according to his will, when you realize that his ways are not our ways, but his ways are always better than ours, when you realize that church family, I'm here to tell you that you can have confidence in the playground of life. Because then you function under authority, under the name of Jesus. So it don't matter if those triplets of problems are driving you through the mud and, and you're just suffering. And it seems like you're hitting your head and you're just getting waxed and you're just getting sucker punched. It don't matter because those things have no eternal significance. And ultimately it's going to be all good because Jesus will clean us up. He'll clean us up. He'll make us new. And the book of Ephesians says he'll take us in eternity and lavish us in heavenly glory that is beyond comparison to anything that we could ever deal with here on earth. Any pain, any suffering that we can deal with here on earth. And he will call us blessed. And he will say, good and faithful servant. And he will say, enter into your rest. And right now, we just have to trust that he's in the process of rubbing all that dirt off. So the question for you today is, will you pray? Will you pray in the confidence that you have access to eternity here on earth? See, when you pray with that type of faith, because of where you stand with Jesus, then things begin to happen here on earth. Will you pray confidently that you are actually communicating with God, that God is hearing you and that God will answer? Do you have faith in that? And will you pray that God's will will come to fruition through your life and through my life when the time is right? Will you pray in such a way for church family? Because we have a lot of plans. There is much to do. You look outside and the playground don't look so safe. And I'm convinced that the only way to overcome is if we're connected to God. It's not how much knowledge you know. It's not how many big godly words you know. Those things are good. It's ultimately on your dependence upon the God that you know about. And move from there. So will you have that confidence of life, church family? Will you pray in that fashion? Let's go before the Lord.